Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show where we talk about how tech and innovation, and today, video games can make the world a better, safer, happier, more prosperous place. And I thought we would talk in particular, and I'm here with uh, Aaron Powell and Will Duffield, who our regular listeners already know, uh, to discuss how the concept of like player agency, the idea of controlling a figure as he runs or he or she runs throughout the game, does that have real world implications for how people engage in the civic sphere, how we think politically, basic human behavior and thought patterns? Uh, we are arguably the first generation to grow up playing video games for kind of our entire uh, kid and teenage and adult lives. I think the median age of a gamer is now 35. So Aaron's close to it. I'm right there. Will's a little bit younger, but it's Young our generation. Gamer. Yeah, so uh, to kick things off, I thought we'd talk about, like, what was the game? What was the video game that kind of caught your attention and turned you into a gamer? I think that it was probably – I think the one that first, like, got me hooked as opposed to just, like, one that I played over at friends' houses or played off and on at home but, you know, take it or leave it sort of thing was Wing Commander, mm. the the old Chris Roberts space flight simulator and – not because it I got hooked on flight simulators or anything of that sort, but it was my – at least it, as I think back, it was probably my first exposure to games as vehicle for narrative in such a strong and cinematic way, which then defined basically all of my taste in games going forward. The games were interactive movies or interactive novels that then through that interactivity invested you in the narrative in a way that – the linearity of books or movies couldn't quite. Um, so I would say probably that that was the a formative thing was mm. Wing Commander. Yeah, so that's interesting. I mean, we can talk here, I think, about what it is which we're trying to get from the gaming experience. Like for you, narrative is a big part of Wing Commander. I played, I think, one of the sequels um, on the PC back in the day, uh, though not the original. Um, but I, I grew up playing Civilization, Castle Siege and Conquest, like strategy games where they're basically – I mean I suppose there is a narr narrative in the sense that you are building the story of an empire, right? You build your you – know, from the it's Fertile a, Crescent. It's a much to... more self-driven narrative. You're really yeah. filling in those micro-level stories. Yeah. So I suppose it's not that it's not narrative but it's not a design narrative in the same way – uh, that say Wing Commander is or a novel is for that matter where there is an author and you're tracing through the narrative that's been designed for you. Uh, so that that's my own experience. How about you, Will? I was always uh, more of an MMO gamer. Um, that EverQuest ability, or? Uh, Guild Wars. Cool. Guild Wars. I, I played okay. Guild Wars on a dial-up connection. Ooh. So I'd have to go into new areas by myself, wait three hours for the whole thing to load, and then I could go back with a group without inconveniencing them. Um, oh, and, and for me, it was really that, that idea of a persistent, separate world, a place I could inhabit and that I knew would be around for a while that I could go back to, um, and there to, to shepherd a single character over three or four or five years, um, that seemed to mean something, um, building up relationships with other players over time. Um, and unlike our experiences, it is a very social. I mean, the MMO by 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 definition is a social shared experience. Yeah. You're part of a guild, you're and part it of would group. be, uh, you know, your friends at school meeting up with them online after school. Um, so really, an, an extension and expansion of that communal sphere. Um, remember. Back in the early days of World of Warcraft when one gold was really worth something before <laughs> now a well, decade and a half of inflation, I guess. <laughs> um, and a friend of mine being paid in World of Warcraft gold to roll down a large hill in a trash can <laughs> at recess. Um, yeah. I guess uh, you know, kind, kind of cryptocurrency vibe there yeah, way yeah. back when. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Well, there was uh, – who was it? Um, Varoufakis, I forget his first name. He was the uh, finance yeah. minister of Greece. Uh, but before that, before Steam's in-house economist studying EVE online markets. Yeah. And... Yeah. 
I don't think uh, his his ambit extended to uh, your friend rolling down a, a hill in the barrel. But you know the way in which in game economy. I, I think function. he'd be very critical of that sort of exploitation. <laughs> I think that would really bother good yeah. old Giannis. It does sound like a tr- uh, terrific metaphor for digital currencies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That, that's right. That's proof, proof of work, rolling down a hill in a barrel. <laughs> that's funny. Well, so, I mean, I, I think our first big question then uh, is kind of related to this question of, okay, what what makes games interesting and valuable? And all three of us have different experiences. Yours, Will's more social. Uh, uh, Aaron's is more narrative um, in, the, in the kind of uh, – traditional sense uh you actually had this really shocking piece aaron that uh you shared with us on an old medium piece um i I, what was the title again video games should always let you win uh which you wrote in 2014 so this is is the first dark souls out then i I don't know but yeah and also clickbait years uh looking at that title (laughs) (laughs) it's a good title it's a good title but it was controversial because you basically said look if the goal of the game is to draw you into this compelling narrative, um, it, it would be weird to make a game that not everyone could complete that narrative, right? Like, because people are not everyone's equally good at games, and you in there basically say, I'm, right. I'm the, no good. The thesis was um, motivated by me being very bad at <clears throat> video games. I always play them on the easiest difficulty level and still struggle more often than not, and hated. Nintendo games as a kid because I, you know, couldn't beat more than a couple of levels of Mega Man and whatever. Um and <clears throat> and playing a a grand narrative, you know, huge RPG game, say, in this case it was I think one of the, the Dragon Age games um prompted this article and getting to a point where suddenly you had a twitchy boss battle or some sort of action sequence that was too difficult. And and what that means when you've got a game that takes 100 hours to complete and you've put in 60 and now you're just stuck. <laughs> and yeah. and the 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 standard response is we'll get better, you know, keep keep practicing until you can you can beat that. Um and and sure, but that's a lot of additional time invested in something that you know, I don't happen to find all that fun, like yeah. playing the same level over and over again in order to beat it is not what I enjoy about these games. Um, and it, it puts a – there was a time like PC games, you know, all had cheat codes. So you could just make yourself invincible and go um, or <clears throat> there was the Game Genie when I was a kid that would let you do the same thing with your console games. But most of these games, especially on the console now, don't have cheat codes. If you're stuck, you're stuck um, and maybe you can invite a cool person over to beat the level for you or something. Uh, but – but what this means and how this analogizes to other, you know, as games become increasingly grand narrative delivery devices, that these are, you know, huge novelistic epics to to just say, well, but if you're not good at pushing buttons in the right sequence, you're not good at this, you know, twitchy thing, you just don't get to see the whole of the narrative play out. And so it wasn't it wasn't an argument that like every game should be easy. It was an argument that is, that when you have this particular kind of game, um, that there should you shouldn't ever force a player to quit because they're simply not good enough to beat an action sequence, and that it would be the same thing as if a novel, you know, suddenly like at the end of every chapter had a little puzzle, and if you couldn't figure out how to beat that puzzle, the novel physically wouldn't let you skip it. <laughs> yeah. I think that was that was nuts. Like you bought the novel, you ought to be able to experience the whole thing. You've paid money for yeah, it; it's yeah, yours. Yeah. Which... So I I suppose I'm of the opinion that a part of that narrative of what you're doing in a game is that your mastery of the game skill system is expected to track the character's mastery over challenges in the game world and perhaps the game should provide you with an option to give up on being a hero and walk away and go farm because you weren't good enough at it and then your your mastery can track the character's mastery. But if the character is going to go on and become king and you at some point in that process kind of drop out of it, um, the, the narrative isn't really realized. There's a desynchronization or delinkage and at, at that point, you might as well just be watching the cutscenes online or um, – 
I don't know, re reading a summary of the thing, you know, turn it into a novel at that point. But the, that tracking or, or parallel of your skill and, and character mastery um, forms some integral element of uh, a, a I mean, narrative I, journey. I can see that, but it seems like it's a it's a relatively minimal. Um, so on the first the first thing is that you, you know if you've bought this game, you've paid money for it, so you paid sixty bucks or whatever it is. Like it seems odd to say you're not allowed to enjoy it in certain ways, um, or if you're enjoying it in the wrong way, you don't get to enjoy it. Pay for a hand of cards. I don't necessarily win the win the hand. I still well, play but that's it but then you're fail. but in that case, it's because you're playing with other people. Like this isn't you know it's one thing to cheat against other people, but there's no cheating in a game isn't really cheating because you're not cheating anyone. You know, there's not someone who is going right. to be harmed by you. <clears throat> making yourself invincible. And so if you get a tremendous amount of enjoyment out of this thing and you know as I said before the, like the watching the cutscenes isn't quite the same because the the degree of agency the participation in the decisions is what invests you which is why I think um that video games increasingly will be seen as a a superior narrative delivery vehicle to films and novels and and television and whatnot is because that that personal that that even that minimal level of agency within the game kind of invests you in it in a way that the the passivity of these other mediums can't match. Um, and so those, it's, those choices are meaningful because they allow you to risk failure. You can opt in to a harder challenge, say, by fighting someone rather than accepting their demands. And if you know going in that that fight won't be that hard or you can specifically make it easier, There's no stakes. the magnitude the of stakes. that decision yeah. has – I think there's a difference between a decision – so there can be a game where you can make choices and those choices can have consequences um, and they can have consequences within the narrative. and. A game where the the choice the narrative is just cut off. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. Like even within the the kind of context of the fiction, right? So in in tabletop games, designers talk about being like true to the the game being true to the fiction, the mechanics being true to the fiction. That the the fiction of say take you know Witcher three or one of these grand games is not that this is a character who's just going to die. At some point, like that, that would that would be like not true to the fiction because that's not who he is. Um, and so, bad things can happen to him if you make the wrong choices in these, you know, morally ambiguous positions, and you should suffer those consequences. But that's different from he just got killed by this mid-level guy halfway through, and that's the end of it. Because that that almost like is is a betrayal of the grander narrative. narrative. Yeah. So there's something interesting here. I think that. Uh, might impact uh, impact the the, the divide because uh, I don't think there's a right answer to this. Right, different people are trying to extract different meanings or purposes out of playing a game. But one thing that has been true is that gaming tastes change with age. So uh, to observe that Aaron's older than Will is, isn't going to get us so far. But I've seen this myself, my own gaming taste that. Younger gamers, and uh, I think it's Quantic Foundry has a. We'll have to link to it in the show notes. Did a study a year or two ago about how younger gamers like competition. They want more competition in their games, so their goal is is a, a test of skill against other players. And I think even in single player games, it's that idea of here's a hard thing: can I beat it? Can I overcome it? That's where they drive well, a lot of historically. Games. Even in single player games, you were often, in a sense, in a contest with others. You know, you're the only one in your grade school class who's beaten Metroid and knows yeah. that Samus is a girl. Um, and that was a yeah. hard thing to do. You've unlocked a secret bit of knowledge that those around you don't have. Yeah. Unless you have the Justin Bailey passcode that yeah, well i'm sure that's how how you got to it given your attitude <laughs> it's true it's true i never beat metroid either beat metroid prime or there. um but as we age that interest in com competition wanes and they, they, they anyways well, well you can go look at the report yeah. for more data and what was interesting though certain kinds of games become less interesting to older gamers so like strategy games tend to persist um tend to be pretty stable in terms of preferences, but action games 
fall quite sharply. And I see that in my own gaming habits. And and you see it in this study, particularly with men. I mean, I couldn't help mm-hmm. look at that chart and just say, oh, this tracks testosterone over men's lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. obviously, as that falls, they're less competitive. They they don't want to beat 12-year-olds in Call of Duty anymore. Um, or lose the 12-year-olds in Call of Duty. This is what really happens. Speak for yourself. <laughs> I, I am. <laughs> um. So yeah, I don't know. That's that's what I was getting out of that that Though, chart. Even heavily. the line for I mean, um, you're right. There was a gender gap that narrowed and eventually yeah, disappeared. As, as a men certain lose age. their testosterone. But it's even with women, like right it went when down. men start to stop doing crimes too. Yeah, but if you look at the you're right. But even at the chart, even the competitive impulse for female gamers also does go down. Even if the buy yeah, not as much. I mean, and some of that may be socialized as well. You're hanging out less with competitive male gamers. Um, perhaps yeah, so perhaps competition doesn't have the same valence. But for whatever reason, I mean, testosterone theory is an interesting one. Our tastes become, in a sense, more like Aaron's as as we age. So congratulations. I guess you're our future. <laughs> I, I have long known that, I mean, eventually everyone's con- tastes just converge on my <laughs> <laughs> You are the, the prime meme. Um, th- something else you may- also gain his humility. Um, <laughs> may it be so. Uh, something else you mentioned in the piece, which I thought was interesting, was um, – you compare well. You, even now, you've compared it to a novel, and how weird it would be if you put a puzzle at the end of each chapter to get to the next, or if at some like crucial point at the cr- climax of the novel, the author suddenly switched the language, so you're reading English, but now the rest of the novel is in French, and you'd be like, "Why? Why did you do? You're gonna make me go learn French? I could, I could go learn French to read the rest of the novel, but why are you doing that to me? Right? So, um." Is that the novel is kind of an apt comparison. A lot of the the moral panics over novels and their effects on on readers in the 18th century actually track pretty well to concerns over gamers yeah, today. Yeah, especially reading like Anthony Comstock when oh, he talks yeah. about you know penny dreadfuls and the oh, violence yeah. they inspire oh, yeah. and young men swept up in it who go out and murder yeah and detective exactly. fiction te- no one liked detective fiction in the early 20th century it was you know eroding young people's minds and um that's so, what made it so fun that's right exactly it's because they were great and terrible um so the, i think you can see like this is not a new phenomenon the idea of um, games as powerful narrative mediums as something that's so powerful you have to be concerned about the next generation using them. Um, but we get over well, it. And, and we as do well, I think more recently in some sort of social justice conversations, the idea that uh, the wrong sorts of game narratives can reinforce reactionary understandings of the world. Um, there was that recent uh, Kingdom Come Deliverance that oh, was yeah, yeah, criticized yeah. to some extent because of its attempts at authenticity. Um, is this – so this this parallels the the arguments about um, video game – violent video games make yeah. us violent. Yeah, yeah. And and it turned out there's – you know, they don't. Like they, they simply – No. And, they don't. And, and, and the time you spend playing video games, you aren't spending sure. going out and doing crimes. But the, what, one of the reasons that they're not – that they don't make us violent is because, um, and I think this is particularly true of people who grew up playing games, is that you can you can conceptually tell that they're not the real world, right? Mm-hmm, You're like, mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot up all these people, but I know that I'm shooting up people in a game, and it's it's fun in the same way that you can watch an action movie, and people don't we don't have these like wild arguments about how watching Die Hard makes people go out and. Right. Yeah, and we all know that, Germans. N- uh, <laughs> that no person could take the abuse experienced sure. by their game characters or John McClane. But that so that level of conceptual separation that we can, you know, we as as game players can recognize that I'm in a game and there's a certain set of rules of like how my conduct is going to play out in this game, but that's not the same as the rules of the outside world. I is there reason to think? Because I know this stuff about like these games reinforce a narrative. They re, you know, their, their narratives talk like make people perform certain gender roles, and it's going to play out in the real world, and it's pernicious. And the you know the the kind of social justice arguments against it, and I get a lot of that. But is there reason to think that it's some that that sort of stuff is somehow distinct from the the same kind of argument about? Violence, or that people who are playing these games where you act in all these really awful—you're playing Grand Theft Auto and you're doing all sorts of awful things—know that that's the game. Um, 
Just I mean, like just I, like I you can play Super no, Mario Brothers and don't say like, well, I'm going to go and jump on turtles. I would say no, particularly because you've seen seen the same sorts of arguments from either side levied specifically at Grand Theft Auto from both a feminist critique and a kind of conservative anti-violence critique um, at at the same game and you know. So, uses the same reinforcing mechanisms, we, et cetera. How about we tweak the argument just a little bit? So, so we there's not a good, a strong literature showing any link between video games and various bad outcomes. You know, they're not more doesn't make a gamer more likely to do drugs or to kill people or to abuse women or, or whatever. Right? Like, so we have a negative correlate, real world correlation with bad outcomes, but. It's actually very popular in the gaming community right now to think – to conceptualize using games to promote positive outcomes. So like there's a game where you put yourself in the shoes – or down somewhere here. You put yourself in the shoes of a Syrian refugee um, or games where you put yourself you, – you're, you're trying to exercise empathy towards people who are different than yourself. And folks are pouring large amounts of capital seeing this as a way to, to reinforce positive behavior. So it's the flip of – is that possible? I, I'm skeptical. I mean, I think, say, in the example of a Syrian refugee experience game, anyone who seeks out that experience is already going to be predisposed to, yeah, co yeah. concerned with the empathy they show refugees. Um, yeah. So it's kind of a selection issue, very yeah, much so. Yeah. Um, I mean, that said, the the power of these games as narrative mediums, the especially the way that you can connect to characters. So, you know, like I have read a lot of fiction and I have there are characters in the history of fiction who matter to me in the sense that like I, you know, once I was done with it with the book or whatever, I missed them. I miss spending time with them or, you know, I, you think of them as having so a connection. You think about their judgment, you know, them got as a moral guide in a sense that way. In some cases, like I mean depending on who the character, but you you feel a connection to them. Um but if I were to try to make a list of the fictional characters who I – that had that level of connection to me, probably most of that list now would be characters from video games. Mm -hmm. It would be characters from Mass Effect. It would be characters from The Witcher. And I don't I don't think that's because these characters are necessarily, you know, better drawn, that there's better authors working in the the field of video games or they're better acted, but but it's that because you are in a sense, in that world, they the relationship with them feels just even slightly more like a relationship with an actual person because you're interacting with them as opposed mm -hmm. to just absorbing them. Rather than listening and, to their arguments, you've argued with them. Right. And and so to the extent that you know, the long history of thinking of literature can function as moral education, that it can yeah. give you a way to put yourself into the head of someone else and and learn about the world, have experiences and see how those experiences play out in the practical sense and in a moral sense in in an environment where you don't have to put yourself in danger or don't have to make these terrible choices and that that can enrich us as moral beings. If If video games for reasons I just articulated or for other reasons that I haven't thought of, like do that even slightly better, you can imagine them having a yeah, yeah. an effect in this regard. But again, I think there is something different about the positive and negative. Like I want to say that we we can take away from positive experiences gained from from art, from literature, from narratives, we kind of internalize, but even in books reading books we don't we seem to know that the negative ones are negative yeah, and yeah. not like so people people can learn things from people you know you learn things from reading to kill a mockingbird um about positive traits of character and all that but re, but people don't then on the other side of it like read thomas harris about hannibal lecter and take away because yeah, i think yeah. we're we're like tuned I, I mean, to that's a pretty extreme example i think you there are many young men wandering this country who have read Fight Club and decided that Tyler Durden was awesome and a role model. Um, and that's not <laughs> the lesson you're supposed to get well, from that book. Well, so I think there's, but... some, there's something interesting here, which is so when even despite a surface similarity between negative and positive things to take away from video games, it's actually a very different mechanism because in the negative, so in the video games cause violence conversation, what we're talking about is. Um, by someone going through the process of pulling a trigger and then the person on their screen pulls a trigger and shoots a thing, 
they're more likely to pull a trigger in real life. Whereas what we're describing here, what Aaron's what you're describing is uh, we're talking about getting caught up in the narrative flow. So you're 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 so it's the difference between the game as a process that you do or the game as a as a, a literal act. Like I pull the trigger on my Xbox controller, he shoots on there. That's its own thing. But then there is just video games as any other kind of of, of narrative engagement. Well, I, I think it, we, we need to limit so this So one case can work and one might not work, in other words. To like a specifically a specific sort of well-designed narrative game. And when I say well-designed, I'm speaking to a certain interaction between the game's rule set and the game's narrative. Um, for instance... Spec Ops The Line, a sort of really heart of darkness um, tale about a group of special forces soldiers in a kind of completely desertified Abu Dhabi. Um, There's a a sequence in which you are attempting – you drop uh, white phosphorus on terrorists and you're, you're aiming. You have a reticle. There are civilians that you're trying to avoid. Um, or you you can avoid. I suppose you could drop it on them as well. But no matter what you as the the player choose to do, the end effect is that they get hit anyway, um, even if you studiously attempt to avoid them. And you then walk through the horror afterwards. Um, so you as the player have had some agency, which then through the rule set and the narrative is revealed to have been fictitious. That instance, I think, could potentially teach us something about the difficulty of avoiding collateral damage in warfare and um, the danger of unleashing a weapon um, given that you don't know exactly how it will behave, what its effects will be. Um, But it's that interplay between agency, expected agency, rule set and narrative that delivers that point and I think those moments are fairly rare yeah. um, across video games as a whole. And I think anyone who's played that who's played that game remembers that scene. I mean I you know the horror you feel like, oh, you come here's a body of a mother shielding well, her and, and there are some alive. people who've like kind of survived but are, are gonna die soon and you get right. that agency back in choosing to end their lives earlier there and, right, and maybe right. take them out of out of misery um, and what kind yeah. of player I am. So then it's, it's introduced back in, but so, uncomfortably. So someone's – I mean I think the – not the, the critics who would – who they're mistaking what's going on in the game with the mere mechanism of, of play, of your fingers pulling things and then things happening on the screen. That's the least – that's only at one part of what's going on in the video game. It's this narr- narratival engagement that where you get that true kind of profound empathetic response, the ability to inhabit the world of of another person. It would be like – I mean I'm trying to think of a corollary. It would be like imagine uh, one of the most um, important American novels, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And no one thought that people would read Uncle Tom's Cabin and as they read through the description of people unleashing dogs to hunt down fugitive slaves, no one's like, oh, if you read this novel, you're more likely to, to unleash your hounds on fugitive slaves. No. That, that you're mistaking the the process going on, Pe- but what people are doing as they read that novel, they were engaging their empathetic muscle. They were they're flexing, working out the muscle to say, "Oh, I feel bad for the protagonist in this narrative." Um, I mean, it, it does open the possibility to. I mean, there are games that can have bad messages. I mean, sure, right? Um, that's possible. I mean, you could argue Fight Club. Uh, maybe maybe the it has a good message, an easy to miss message. To people miss, message. miss it. Um, people just it's like I was in the my first saw the which which Batman movie is the one with Heath Ledger, uh, Dark Knight. Dark Knight, yeah, Dark Knight. Uh, I was in a movie theater in in uh, in in Philly, in that scene where the pencil disappears in the bad guy's eye because the the Joker does a magic trick. Um, you're supposed to be like <gasps> kind of shocked. The, the movie theater broke out in laughter. The the median member of the audience thought that was just pure comedy. There was no sense of shock or outrage. It was just funny. So anyways, people people misread messages all the time, I I suppose is the point there. But take that to say, I mean, I, the value I think here in video games is they can be used to reinf- reinforce positive moral messages 
or or the opposite. I mean, that is a thing that happens. They can engage the moral centers. Um, yeah, well, do you want to take it there, Will? So we have um, – one of these messages could be uh, political libertarianism. Yes, all potentially. right. Yeah. So, uh, Reason Magazine did a special uh, edition of the, uh, I think it was a cover cover article back in 2014 about video games as a libertarian genre, how they're kind of naturally libertarian, um, which raises the question: What would make a game libertarian? So, is is um, when you were playing Dragon Age Origins, is that a libertarian game? Uh, if you were to play another game, like uh, I, I'll open it, open that up to the to the rest of the roundtable. Yeah, I mean, I think we can certainly. It's possible to think of games that push in the other direction. So I, I wonder how many um, busybody bureaucrats who loves now love and advocate for more state control got their start playing sim city and oh, yeah. and thinking that that yeah, is yeah, how yeah. you build a prosperous city is by micromanaging every last aspect of every person's life um i mean you you made so the counter argument great. that a, <laughs> yes that that a a libertarian sim city would be awfully boring cuz you just kind of turn it on and then just watch it go uh, but well, and and they're beguiled into believing that they have perfect information because within SimCity, you do vis-a-vis the game's rules yeah. um, and I, the real world is very different. My fear though, I mean when you start, is this game libertarian? Is that game libertarian? What would a libertarian game look like? Um, my fear in all of those kinds of conversations is that you know, almost every instance, politically didactic fiction, whether it's books or movies or games, is terrible. Yeah. Fiction, that fiction that sets out to make a political point is almost always bad. And and so things can have themes, sure, but I think that if if you set out to make a game that is going to advance libertarian principles, it's going to be a game no one will want to play. Yeah. It will come off as ham-handed. People can – I mean everyone will just – sense it in the same way that you get an immediate creepy vibe whenever you see an after school special because you know that it's got a message. The, the faith-based film industry right the now. The faith-based film industry, oh, sure. So cool. I, right. I feel as though I took the question slightly differently. I wasn't really thinking about which game suppose best conveys a libertarian narrative but which, which is one game way of defining it. Yeah. Yeah. But in its construction and how it's been architected um, exhibits libertarian values and for me, the answer was Minecraft because compared to everything else on, on this list, it seems to be the most free form to leave the goals of the player's time in that world to the player and even with open world games like Red Dead Redemption or um, Oh, I don't know. Um, yeah, and any of these. Long, uh, the big open world sandbox games would, would yeah, fit there. Fa yeah, Fallout. You know, there yeah. there is a set goal there, and to some extent, or to a large extent, the game's rules channel you towards that. How you interact with the world in Fallout is mostly through shooting things. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And and that matters. Um, whereas in in Minecraft, you aren't nudged towards any particular goal. You have people who build everything from little farmsteads for themselves to hang out in with their friends to giant models of real world cities to functional clocks using the game's physics system. But I mean is this – is that libertarian in the sense that anyone who's playing it is picking up libertarian Themes, because on the one hand, what you've just said is that you know no, they're living that, freely. They're living freely, the but they're also Minecraft. they're also like, isn't it neat to live in a world where? Because if you're doing the, I guess, creative mode where you're building all these fantastic things, um, you're you can do all sorts of neat things in a world with zero resource constraints. Sure. So what we need is a society, a system that you know removes resource constraints on all of yeah. us. You know, you're not. You don't have to worry about getting health insurance in yeah. the Minecraft world. Um, it's post-scarcity science fiction. I mean, there's right. A, yeah. I, I mean, I think so. Uh, what I there's a risk of someone from any ideology looking at a game and trying to read their ideology back into it, and then assuming that it must be in there such that it will be read out of it by 
others. That you could take Minecraft and you could spin all kinds of stories and ideological positions in part because the game is so empty, so like narratively bland that there's – you know, it's like it's like saying like are, are Legos libertarian or are they socialist? You know, um, they're well, Legos. They're from Sweden, right? So uh, definitely socialist. So, <laughs> so a libertarian game or one that had libertarian themes, I think it would have to be baked more into a narrative – in order for them to be genuine, there have to be a degree of call it authorial intent or something behind this. Um, but then that colors us over towards the the didactic problems. Um, and I, I just think, I mean, if we if we're skeptical at the start that people, you know, that people are going to pick up, we can indoctrinate people so that the you know we shouldn't these games should all be politically correct because otherwise young men are learning all this vile stuff from the video games that they're then going to carry out in their ordinary life when i think in fact it's just that a lot of young men believe all sorts of vile things and talk to other young men on the internet and then they gravitate yeah. to games that they think contain these values um that that the risk the risk we run is pushing games in this either bad direction. Yeah, or I mean, so if the choice is between um, message-driven games that are really heavy-handed or games with no narrative really at all where it's just completely open, this seems like a, a false choice we're presented with. I mean I, to your point, I, I mean there I is – I I feel as though you're both just focusing on narrative to, to the exclusion of – uh, rule set or how you interact with the world. And I see something, say, within Call of Duty, your only means of interacting with the world is shooting things and all of the problems are solved by killing enough people. Um, and I think there is implicitly some message in that. Well, but um, this gets back – this thing gets the, you know, what would a libertarian sim city look like in that if if libertarianism is – defined you know we might define it for purposes of discussing it within this context as um, limited constraints on the possible actions of the individual that we want to maximize individual choice um, that that's going to necessarily at least with the technology as it currently exists mean that any game that has a framework, is going to be non-libertarian libertarian because it's going to force you to follow a certain path. Um, and, and so the only games that would be libertarian are ones that don't force you to follow a path. But because we can't – you can't do much with that except give yeah. people construction kits, which is what Minecraft yeah. is. Like that's the – but even wow. that, there's rules on what you can do and how you can build things I, I and you can't you invent things that weren't already in the game to some extent. Point to EVE Online perhaps and, and the ways in which it enables social organization and provides rules or mechanisms for creating them in a way that doesn't exist elsewhere. So, um, so I mean it, it, it would be weird. It'd be weird if we approach novels like we do video games. Like the only real novel is a novel that you write yourself. A blank journal. That's a novel. That's a libertarian novel because you everyone gets to write their own story. And that's that's odd. Right? Um and Minecraft is in a sense it's more of a it's more of a, a game game engine. It's a game designer. It's a set of tools rather than a video game itself, which it's still cool. It's a. It's cool to have that kind of game desire be so popular, and kids do, and people do so many awesome things with it. But it is not itself in a in the traditional sense a video game. Just as a blank journal, um, with lined journal isn't itself a novel. It's the it's the thing that you can build a novel out of. Um, now I, there is something else here which I think. Um, I think I'm comfortable with – I do like games with a narrative and with a message. I like games with, with – with, and that can be a message I completely agree with and not. But you do want a game that shows rather than tells, right? So it's not like the problem is it's not libertarian if it's giving me a message or it's not libertarian friendly if the message is one I don't fully agree with. That's not – I don't think that's the right response. It's the question of of – does that is is the message that's being told? Is it something that I, I can participate in? Um, I can 
go along with the authorial intent, but yet I do still feel re- somewhat responsible for it. I feel like I am joining with the author and making that story. And then the message that they're giving me is one that is, it makes that message more compelling, more. So, well, so I like think very small changes can do this work. You look at older yeah. Battlefield games and when you spawned, you just spawned in. Yeah. Um, not Nothing. And in in Battlefield One, the more recent World War Two themed, um, World War One themed, yes, World War One themed um, game. Each time you drop in, you're given a name, some some random name. But you know, the last guy you were inhabiting is now dead forever. That's it. And you're some other poor conscript about to go over the top. And the internal narrative you create for yourself there rather than I'm back but, oh, this guy, let's hope he doesn't end up like the last one. It's it's a, a far greater building block I think for you know just your imagined story running through that, that spawn. And again, in a multiplayer game, there isn't a set narrative you're following there but giving you that building block matters. I suppose uh, real briefly, this gets us to the idea of um, is there such a thing as free will in gaming? Like some of this is the juxtaposition will like when you like what you like about Minecraft is the fact that it's completely up to you what you do. So it has – it maximizes this feeling of autonomy and free will. A game with a strong – narrative, lots of authorial intent, has you on rails, guiding you guiding you from chapter to chapter to chapter. This is my uh, hardcore conservatism of life is just more enjoyable when there's lots of structure. <laughs> no. I mean all of those fantasy games, you end up as the king at the end after you've killed the big bad guy and you know you're still going to be taxing people and putting down peasant revolts and doing all sorts yeah. of bad well, I stuff. I thought you wanted Aaron to end up a farmer instead of the king. Well, yeah. Just walk away. Walk. But they don't give you that option. He's <laughs> he's bad at trying to fight the dragon. So you just you know wander off, do your own thing, raise some kids. Yeah. Well, I mean I think it goes back to like if we have a really um, – uh, vulgar, really uh, simplistic understanding of what makes a game libertarian, then that feels problematic. But if you don't think of it as maximizing my personal autonomy to do whatever the heck I want, that every game needs to look like just the Just Cause series or Minecraft to be libertarian. But you instead, you think of it as an opportunity to inhabit other people's points of view, to exercise empathy, tolerance, various virtues that we associate with libertarian. Right. I think that's where – I mean that's where games can – really bring about libertarian themes in the sense that empathy I think I think at the core of a lot of libertarianism is empathy is understanding that other people are other people that they have their own desires their own dreams their own things that they love mm-hmm. that that and and understand that they may be radically different from yours yeah uh, but that's okay that they can you know live out their dreams and you can live out your dreams but but getting to there involves like understanding that these people are legitimate and as legitimate in their interests and desires and dreams as you are yeah. in yours. Yeah. Um, and so that's you know so insular people tend to, you know, the libertarianism doesn't flourish when you have kind of super closed off societies because yeah. you're just like, well, our way is best. Everyone does it the same way. And the state should enforce that. Like that's it's the only way to do things. It's the only right and, and, and proper. If, so why wouldn't you we? aren't doing yeah, that yeah. thing, you might not really be human. You might not be human. Um, you might, or you're you're a threat. You're other, dangerous yeah. to us. And so yeah. to the extent that these games can put us into the heads of meaningful people very different from us. Whether a grunt in a trench or you know, whoever. Right. right. Yeah. Then they, they can inculcate this, this level of empathy that I think then one would hope and in many cases does play out in a, a willingness to afford others more liberty than we, we might have before. Now, so – do we, I think what's interesting, let's push on to the like are there real life implications for a generation raised on gaming? Like do we see that happening now because of games? Um, there is some interesting evidence of a correlation, whether it's causal or not. And um, But like we know that gamers are more likely to fa- – are more likely to tolerate um, – activities that that non-gamers are less likely to tolerate like drug use 
Um, they're less like they're they're more sympathetic with complaints about police militarization and uh, more likely to see a need for police accountability for uh, you know abuse of it's power. Because they're scared of being swatted. Well, but like I think a lot of this stuff actually predates the swatting. Like the 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 numbers, like the Roop reason Roop polls from like 2014, where they showed uh, a lot of this stuff. Swatting's been around for a while. Along that um, I think it's been more the last five years, really picking up, but. Um, so, I mean, is it as simple as that or is this the empathetic <sighs> muscle that like, gaming encourages exercise? I don't, I don't exercise? see gaming as driving any of these trends. I mean, it does seem like a a bucket that uh, younger people who were raised online within certain communities um, tend, tend to hold all of these values. But I don't see gaming as the factor driving all of this. I mean, it's just as likely to be a, you know. Um, I, I mean, I think we're, it's, it's just, if nothing else, way too soon to tell. I mean, we have had, video games have been around for a while. They've been, you know, popular enough that like lots of people played them for what, 40 years or something. Yeah. Um, but But for quite a lot of their history, they were, you know, you're, doing some weird little thing jumping on platforms where like there's no it would be hard to yeah. take away anything and there's no social values baked into them playing asteroids isn't going to really do much to yeah, yeah sure and so it was it was only relatively recently that games of the kind that we've been talking about either of these you know uh, big narrative or character driven where you can you can inhabit other people's heads or are really open-ended construction kits that give you absolute freedom like those are relatively new and call them 20 years old mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, 25 years old and that's not even a full generation so we i think it's just it's too early yeah. to see it's going to take another generation or two um even if we could tease out the the lines of causation as you've yeah raised whether well. gaming is is the independent variable right. here or yeah. if people who believe in drug legalization tend to game more because of that um i i would say that if there is any any mechanism at play here i might point to presence or membership within a non-geographic community yeah. um, as as the valuable element here. Um, and, and as Aaron was talking about closed societies or communities earlier, um, it, it is simply to some extent the antithesis of that. Um, if yeah. you're part of a, a World of Warcraft guild with members from all over, you're more likely to be playing with someone who, say, lives in a state where marijuana has been legalized and they use it and speak to their experiences about it and seem like a normal enough person. And you living in Idaho, that's the first person you've met who openly smokes. Uh, but they seem like you and you have this interest in common. So how bad could they or it really be? Um, and so the same when you look at foreigners or yeah. whatever else. I mean, to some extent, that's ancillary to the gaming experience. Itself, yeah, it's being on, sense. being very being online, connected um, online. Yeah, um, but at the same time, I mean, you imagine if so. We can see, like, anytime you take a new media form, whether it's the rise of the novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, you you go down, you know, you name it. Um, it can have a profound. Like only after the fact can you say, oh, this had a profound effect on changing kind of the public mood or opinion on an issue or set of issues. You can imagine that also applying to games, but it might be too early to tell. But imagine the power. Imagine if you had this new form. We have this new form of game, which in a sense is an evolutionary adaption of the novel, or at least some games are. And instead of it just being an individual experience that you read and go through on your own, and then after the fact, you can go gather with your your book club or around the water cooler and hey, have you read what what you know that novel wasn't that powerful? Oh yeah, I mean like, and that's a thing that happens. Or you read about the reviews of Uncle Tom's Cabin in the newspaper the next day, and what, imagine if you actually are going through that experience. And then with thousands of other Leroy people. Jenkins runs in and ruins it for all of you. <laughs> right, and the narrative right. changes drastically from one of heroism to shrieking in panic yeah. and running away. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the potential power that's there, you know, whether or not it's well, yeah, and the fact that you've right then now. you're thinking about which community you opt into and hopefully one without a guy who's going to do yeah. that. Yeah. Um, 
Well, it's notable too in terms of, I mean, this has both positive potential effects and, you know, ill effects too. I mean, it's it's hard, like um, out of, as we build these communities, not all of them are going to look virtuous and tolerant and libertarian, if you will, right? I mean, this is, it's the, the incel community has some roots in, in online gaming yeah. culture. And we'll do an episode oh, on gamer just, games. Uh, yeah, we'll have to no, set that aside. No, <laughs> we'll, we'll no. Don't, don't even say it. But anytime you, you can build new kinds of imagined communities. This is a, a guy named Benedict Anderson wrote a book about imagined communities that's hot in, in the academy. Um, it has been, it's the standard has been for some time, but any, this allows us to imagine new kinds of communities, online gaming and gaming culture and, uh, for good or for ill, just as the, the rise of the nation state and colonialism made it possible to imagine new kinds of national communities in, in colonial states. Um, we're seeing that playing out and we will over our lifetimes and it's well, a powerful in, Increasingly, um, I think you, you're starting to see nationalism in online gaming mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. these games become increasingly international yeah. and compounded by the fact that from a technological perspective, that internationality often introduces new complications into the gameplay. Um, while in the absence of lag, national uh, national origin may not matter that much, but if you have a whole group of players who both increase your ping and also happen to be from China, you've created a fertile breeding ground for nationalist hostility towards them. Um, something that's been been playing out in a pirate game called Atlas uh, recently. Okay. Um, people bothered by Chinese players and then in turn, it's created downstream sort of content moderation concerns because folks in the game are allowed to build their ships as they'd like, put images on them. <laughs> the developers thought, you know, maybe we have to deal with some nudity, something like that. But now Is as part of this nationalist, yeah, people are sailing <laughs> ships with Ronald Reagan and the Dalai Lama on the flags um, or, or sails. Yeah. Um, We're getting better at mapping like IRL, real life concerns and struggles and tensions and drama into our game. Well, world, as, right? as the internet eats real life, yeah, that's going yeah. to happen more and more. Are we ready for Ready Player One in a sense, right? Yeah. Though with fewer 80s pop culture references. Well, and where, where VR takes this yeah. will be interesting as well. Um, some of the skill-based concerns that I think were rather silly in the past when it comes to learning to do potentially bad things through games um, might become a little bit more realistic if you're, say, building a bomb using haptic feedback gloves such that you can then <laughs> actually assemble it in real life rather than uh, yeah. just tapping the right combination of keys, which will teach you to do nothing. Yeah. You're trying to make you're trying to make any regulators uh, the, the future tipper gores feel paranoid by listening to this. Yeah. We'll have to do. We should. Do I don't a, want to give them any ideas. I'll shut up now. We'll have to do a, a VR focused episode, not just about gaming, but about VR possibilities somewhere down the line. But until then, until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.